In chapter 1 and verse 16 of Revelation, when the vision of Jesus is being given, you will notice the scripture says that, uh, excuse me, you can get that right. You notice that the, that the scripture says here in 1.16, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I want you to notice how he begins with, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. As the vision of Jesus is given, as he walks in the midst of the seven churches, reminding them that he sees and knows everything they're doing. We need to remember that very thought before we read every single one of these letters, as well as the rest of the book. He's walking in the midst. He's in the midst of us today. He's watching. He sees. He knows right down to the very thoughts and intents of our heart. When he uses these words that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, it is interesting that that is a relation that has an allusion to the Old Testament in two different places. First, you can read in Isaiah 49 and verse 2, when the Messiah is introduced as the one who will bring glory to God, he says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And then, also in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, when the shoot comes out of Jesse, referring again to the Messiah, he says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the, the poor, and decide with equity, for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You might be a little confused by the beginning of that when he says he won't judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. In other words, he's not an ordinary human judge that can only judge by what he sees physically and what he hears told to him. He knows everything and he will judge the earth and judge those who are in need, but also judge those who have violated his word and are rebelling against him. These are the words that are given as the letter to Pergamum is beginning in this particular, uh, in this particular third letter here. He says, the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's interesting because he started this with emphasizing in Isaiah's account that he would judge the earth. Jesus now uses this to say, I'm going to judge the churches as well. And you are the, when you read those words, the letter of Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. If I'm sitting in that audience, my first thought's going to be, uh-oh, <laughs> this doesn't sound good. Because these words were used in the Old Testament concerning judgment. God will, Jesus will do battle with the nations, and he will do battle with churches that are not 
doing the things he asked them to do. And this is the way he begins this letter. We need to pay good attention. As the end of the letter says, whoever has an ear to hear, let him listen to what he says to the churches. Now consider for a moment, I know where you dwell, he says in the beginning of this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now last week we took a look at the, at the church of Smyrna, and there we saw a picture of the synagogue of Satan. He said, I know the synagogue of Satan is in your midst. A Jewish synagogue that was run by Satan and was causing all kinds of persecution for them and, bringing them, and was going to bring them even to the point of death. But in this city, he doesn't, have, he doesn't say there's a synagogue of Satan. He says Satan's throne is in this city. This is where Satan reigns. This is his key throne in the whole area. So what a difference it's going to be to go from being uh, in the city of Smyrna to where there is a synagogue of Satan to now Pergamum where you actually have the throne of Satan and Satan is ruling in that place. He's the king. Now when you look at uh, the background of Pergamum, we understand that from from historical standpoint that this is the center of government c- control and the center of government uh, worship in in the whole Asia Minor area, and so they they are the first to build a temple. In fact, to the uh, to the to the reign of Caesar himself. So we've mentioned before in other in other lessons that the background of the Roman Empire at this time, that certain cities have very, very strong Roman cult worship. This, the city here of Pergamum is a city that has actually built a, a temple to the Caesar. And so you, they, you can imagine how dedicated they are to, to uh, the Caesar, and this happened back in the days of Augustus. They're very proud of this. They have all kinds of other uh, deities that are involved, various notable gods, so that they really deserve the title that this city is the, is the city where Satan actually reigns. His throne is there, and it may be just simply connected to the fact that they have a temple to, the, to Roma and to the Caesar of Rome. Now go from there and just imagine how difficult it would be to live in that city. How difficult it would be to be a Christian in that city. Uh, when we know how in the book of Acts, when Paul would go to certain places and just simply preach Christ, and the whole city would go into an uproar, and the claim was always to bring him down. The claim was always, ah, he's trying to get us to worship another king besides, besides Caesar. And this, this was a strong, patriotic group of people, and they saw this as, you are coming in and destroying our culture. There's no one of us that would really be happy today to live in Dearborn, Michigan. You said, what? What are you talking about? Because in Dearborn, they have now been able to get 
uh, Muslims into the the rulers, the, into the city legislature, and etc. like that, and are being slowly passing laws that, that follow along with the Muslim doctrine. That only takes time. Now, you say, well, America's freedom of religion. Exactly. How's, how's the culture handling it? How would we like it if the culture was... You see how we, we immediately push back We'd say, yes, we want freedom of religion. Absolutely, I do too, because otherwise we don't have freedom. I don't want to take that away. I don't want to take it away from them to be able to worship Islam, because then I could, have, I could lose it too. That's not the point. The point is how we push back, how we feel about our culture being turned upside down. That's exactly how the people in Pergamum are going to feel toward Christians. We live in such a Christian area, so to speak, we live with it around us. It's been a part of the United States since the beginning, that we are accustomed to that being our culture. Feel it the other way around. Feel it with you are the one who is absolutely upsetting the culture. And you can get a feel then of the pushback and how difficult it would be for a Christian in the city of Pergamum. And that is then evident when we realize that he states in the text that one of their own, Antipas, has actually been murdered by the government, actually been put to death. Now, imagine that. Put that in us. Uh, every, every one of us can remember the at least initial fear that we had when COVID hit this country. And all of a sudden, we're hearing of people dying, people dying, people dying, people dying. And we don't know what this thing is. We don't know if it's going to kill 50% of us. I was reading the other day that there are viruses still being tested in labs that would kill over 50% of the population if they got out. So, you know, you just think, well, I'm glad COVID wasn't that. But the fear was in the beginning. Now imagine, and we know how that government authorities in different states and different cities were all different, and how they were going to handle that. And they took power and control at those times, and they threatened lives, and, and there were many, many pretty serious situations. People were thrown in prison, uh, etc. So think about what it'd be if all of a sudden the city of Nashville, which we are in, decided that you meet, you die. And one of us was put to death. Anybody coming back? You got to feel that. That's exactly what happened in Pergamum. They killed one of their members. Probably because they wouldn't participate in a festival that was an honor to a god. They killed one. How comfortable are you now? Looking behind you, watching where you're going, a little fearful about saying, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Suddenly, things look much different when that sort of thing happens. To be a Christian 
is to expect the possibility, and in some cases and in some countries, and maybe someday in our country, the probability. And the important thing is, is how are we going to handle it? Pergamum, interestingly enough, for the most part, handled it well. That's what we'll see. But there was also compromise, and that was the danger. So let's take a look. Jesus says, you've done really great. He says, in fact, in verse 13, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. But then, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, this is as a, a little bit of a puzzle to me. I'm fairly convinced that the whole church didn't know they had those people in there, in their midst. The reason I say that is when you get to the next letter in the church at Thyatira, which, Lord willing, we will deal with next week, he said, I have this against you because you tolerate. And there were many who didn't participate, but you tolerate. In this case, he doesn't say anything about tolerating. He just simply says, some of you. And then when he talks about the condemning, he says, I'm going to bring wrath on some. So it may be, and this, this is not necessarily uncommon. It's not uncommon today. I've been in churches where there were small groups of friends who got involved in some sinful things. And they supported one another, and they encouraged one another, and they kept it quiet from the rest of the church, knowing full well that that would not be good. So it's possible to do that. I mean, after all, the church in Jerusalem, though fairly large church from what we know, in Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem had embedded in them uh, Judaizers and teachers. And they had a pretty good row about it when it all came out. And Paul came down and Barnabas came down from Antioch, realizing they'd put out some false teaching to other churches. So that is possible in this, in this particular situation. So let's, in order to understand this, we, we have to realize what they would have had to go through and what may have been happening with this teaching of Balaam. So even though they endured an ultimate sacrifice, one of their own dying, this struck me right in the beginning. It did not excuse the compromise in other teachings. So we, I think a church would probably feel pretty good about themselves. We kept right on. Even though Antipas got killed, we're going to keep right on going. I think they'd feel pretty good about that. And Jesus complimented them. But he said, look, that's not going to change the fact that I've got some things against you that you need to straighten out because I'm not going to put up with these other things that you're doing. So he mentions the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Probably the teaching of Balaam and Nicolaitans is very similar, just different sects, 
both of them compromising as to how they were going to handle themselves in this idolatrous city, in this city where if you were going to be patriotic, if you were going to follow the proper patriotism of Rome, you were going to offer and be a part of the festivals and offer uh, sacrifices to, uh, to the gods that were in, in the city. So let's talk just a little bit about this so you understand who Balaam was. He's covered back in Numbers chapter 25 through 20, uh, 22 through 25. Now Balaam was an actual prophet of God. He was from the east. I would imagine since Balak, the king of Moab, had heard of him, which would be many, many miles away and a four-month journey, that, that Balak somehow knew of him because he was famous. A prophet of God had been delivering all kinds of prophecies and, and blessings on nations and curses on nations and whatever Balaam said came to pass. And Balak says, yippee, that's exactly what I need. These Israelites have come near my border and they're a threat to me, and I don't like it, even though the Israelites were commanded. They, of course, I don't know if Balak knew this, but the Israelites were commanded to leave them alone. But he says, I've got to get somebody to curse these people so that they don't conquer me. So he tries to hire Balaam, a prophet of God, to come and pronounce curses on Israel so Israel could not conquer. Prophet of God offered money. How's that sound? <laughs> Not too good. <laughs> Not too good. And God was very angry with Balaam that he decided to go. And Balaam waffled on both sides, trying to appease God, but trying to appease the king of, Balaam, uh, of, of Moab. And when he got there three, four times, he tries to curse Israel. Three times he tries to curse him, and God brings, a brings it out as a blessing out of his mouth. And the fourth time, he just speaks extemporaneously and goes right ahead and blesses him a fourth time. So Balak is furious with Balaam. That's not doing it. If I didn't ask you to come here and try to pay you, I would have made you a rich person if you could have cursed him, and you didn't do it. And Balaam goes, just hold on a second. And he went to the women of Moab and the women of Ammon. And he said, dress up real cute, get yourself all jazzed up, and do a festival for one of your gods and offer yourself for sexual pleasure. And he said, we'll get Israel cursed. And Israel did it. And Israel got cursed. Thousands upon thousands died in a plague because of what the Israelites did. And Balaam got killed in the battle that followed up in Numbers chapter 25 mentioned in Numbers 31. So, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of, of getting some kind of monetary benefit from compromising the truth. It wasn't that Israel was giving up on God. It's just that, and Balaam wasn't giving up on God. It's just that he's trying to get themselves in a position so that they can make some money. 
So here's what was happening apparently in Pergamum. You have some who've compromised in the way they would handle the festivals in the city of Pergamum, when they would handle the, the worship of the gods. If you were in a union, if you're in a guild, something like that, you had to keep your job, you had to do this. We've talked about that uh, even a little bit before with Smyrna. So this was part of the things that were going on. And so these people are giving themselves to this in order to escape that. I would imagine the most of the Christians at Pergamum weren't going down to the center of the town and the marketplace during these festivals. I mean, would you? <laughs> you know. Uh, it's like when Teresa and I visited Broadway in downtown uh, Nashville. We'd lived here three years. We went, well, we've never seen the city we live in, so let's go down. We spent 15 minutes. I said, I think I've had enough. <laughs> and we left. And that was it. So haven't been back since that I can recall, except I think I did meet somebody for the lunch there down there once. Paid more for the parking than I did the lunch. You know. <laughs> Goodness. At any rate, you, that's, that's, that's just the way it is. They probably didn't go down and see these people doing that. And they're quietly keeping their jobs and they're keeping the, the, the symbol up. Now think about how that would be. What would be the rationalization? How would they rationalize that in their minds? They would just say, we don't believe it. We don't believe in those gods. We just go and we burn a pinch of incense. We eat their meal. We, we, you know, we sit down with them. I mean, it's pretty good food. Some of the best in the town. They make really good steaks out of those cows, you know. And boy, it would just be, it's just terrific. But we don't believe in that idle stuff. Does that, that remind you of somebody in the New Testament? Sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Some of the Christians there were doing the same thing. They were going to the idol's temple for lunch and for dinner because it was the best restaurant in town after all. And we don't believe in those idols. Yeah, they go through the ceremonies and then we eat, whatever. It would be like if you were living in the days of Daniel and Daniel's three friends and the whole of, of all of the city are, are around this big uh, thing that Nebuchadnezzar built, and he says, now at the sound of the music, everybody drop down on the ground and, and give honor and worship to the, to the uh, emblem that I made. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand, just stand up. I wonder how many Jews that were there that went, <laughs> I'll hit the ground and pray to God. He'll never know. Uh-huh. That's the easy rationalization. Exactly. And that's the doctrine of Balaam. To compromise in order to save your life or your money or something like that. The problem is, folks, our service to God is not to placate, but to proclaim. We are to speak we are to proclaim Jesus and our allegiance to him, number one, above everything else. We're not going to compromise. And this is a key theme in the book of Revelation. Over and again, the caution and warning is 
that we are going to stand up and be vocal for Jesus, not simply silent so that we can escape the persecution. Look at the words. Revelation 12, verse 11, when he speaks of of overcoming Satan. He says, we have overcome, they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even to the death. And so the picture being that they were overcoming because they wouldn't be quiet. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, he tells us, take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. This is what we've been called to do. And you can't fake it. And many Christians at that time did. They would do the outward part. And later in Revelation 21 and verse 8, as he speaks of those who will be cast in the lake of fire, his first word is the cowardly. That's the first one on the top of the list. The cowardly. Too afraid to profess their their allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus only. That is the picture. Now, Obviously, what Balaam did is also encourage others, and I would imagine these, maybe quietly, to those that they thought could, they could influence, would encourage others, and pretty soon this starts, would start, of course, leavening the church. I'm sure that's one of the big things that Jesus was afraid of. You keep doing this, and it's allowed, pretty soon others are going to follow the same, follow the same, and it becomes a very, very high percentage of the church that follows in that. So let's stop and think about right now how dangerous that is. Each individual Christian here, you have an effect on the rest of the church, whether good or not so good. By how you handle your faith, by what you put first in your life, by what dazzles your eyes, whether Christ or the world, all of those things affect the rest of the body. I realize that many Christians don't realize that. When I first started preaching, and the church grew from me and Bernice (laughs) to about 60 in three years, all people coming to Christ, about 40% of those, about 40, <laughs> I don't know how, what that is, but uh, a large number of these, about 40%, I got that backwards. Uh, yeah, there was about two-thirds, <laughs> exactly. There was about two-thirds of these who didn't have much passion. They were just glad to, oh yeah, now I got rid of my sins. And so we could have 60 people on Sunday morning and 20 on Sunday night or Wednesday night. And if I taught somebody new and showed them Christ comes first and all the passages and everything and what you need to do and what you need to be when you become a Christian, they go, great. And then when they would come Sunday night or Wednesday night and see 20 people, they'd say, why am I doing this? I don't have to do this. And it became contagious. A church can be contagious in a positive way, which is what we want, or it can be contagious in a negative way. But your 
personal decisions, whether it be in that or other areas, can really affect the rest of the congregation. Obviously, many Christians just don't consider how serious that, uh, that effect is, and those choices do make a big, big difference. Let me show you how. Obviously, becoming a stumbling block goes far beyond whether you're sitting in a pew. That is just sometimes a symptom one way or another. But in a church, unhealthy marriages are also a huge and significant detriment to the growth of the body. So, you know, Jesus is our first and foremost relationship. If you're married, your marriage is the next relationship that has to be cared for. It is a picture and symbol of what it means in eternity to have an eternal life with Jesus as the bride of the Lamb of God, as he's going to mention in Acts 19. We need to be exemplary in our marriages. And you know, I, what I think that comes down to more than anything else is whether you're a husband or you're a wife, you pay attention to your job of laying your life down for the other. And you don't coerce the other one. We don't live in a marriage by coercion. You don't coerce them by anger. You don't coerce them by domination. You don't converse uh, any of those things. You respect one another. And that's extremely important. You start with that foundation that we are going to respect each other. And each of us are going to follow Christ, which is going to cause us to love one another more deeply. But those unhealthy marriages bring a, bring a congregation to a quick stop when they start to blow. <laughs> Don't let that happen. Secondly, unconcerned about our mission and saving souls. Become, become a church that is more concerned about us than we are those who are lost. By the way, the lesson tonight that we're going to talk about, have a discussion about, is from Matthew 18 and what our priorities are as a church. Inward thinking. I'm caring more about how comfortable I am here than what our job and our mission is. Lack of passion for the kingdom of God. I've been around Christians in my life where I couldn't get them to have a conversation. I couldn't change the conversation to talk about spiritual things. They would look at me and turn right around and go back to talking about business and how much money they could make and whatever else. And you know, it's all right to talk about those things time to time, but when you can't even, I, I tried over and again, I just thought, I, I can't stand being around these people very long. So every, because they, all they talk about is how much money they can make. And so I started dropping in little things and they uh, and then go back to talking about making money. And they were the absolute least passionate people I have ever seen that walked into a church building. It was not the Lord. And it's so, so demoralizing. Those are the kinds of things. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First, number one, seek first the kingdom of God. And that's outside of this building. The kingdom of God is wherever that we 
as kingdom citizens can bring the praise to God's glory. And then disagreements that are among the group that are not solved with love and forbearance. Every family is going to have disagreements. Contrary to popular belief, Teresa just thinks I'm just great and uh, she, she just, we just get along perfectly. We never have a disagreement. So, yeah. <clears throat> See, I can say all kinds of things when she's not here. Uh, disagreements, but when they're not solved in love and forbearance and care, above all else, we need to love. So when these things are happening in church, you can list other things, you know them but they become contagious, and then they disable a congregation. These are the things that need to be very, very carefully uh, followed and pursued in our lives. Now, Balaam's encouragement also was to be committing sexual immorality. So that was the primary thing. But it's not just physical sexual immorality. It was also spiritual in the sense that God says, Israel is my bride, Israel is my wife, I'm the husband, and you're going off and worshiping these other idols, eating meat sacrificed to idols, etc. You're doing these things, therefore you're committing spiritual adultery. Most Christians, I would say all Christians, would say, oh, absolutely, you know, physical adultery is terrible, sexual immorality is terrible, we shouldn't be doing that, nothing like that. And yet, when you read in the book of James what it's like to commit spiritual adultery, you get shocked. James said this in James 4.4, you adulterous people, can you imagine hearing the reader of the congregation stand up and say, you adulterous people. <laughs> what? And he says, let me explain. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose to, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is jealous over our relationship. And we, don't, we are jealous who are married. We're jealous about our relationship. Can you just imagine if all of a sudden, by the way, this happened one time. Not here. This happened many years ago in a place I was. And I sat down with the elders, and one of the elders said, have you seen, I'm just going to make up a name, have you seen, we don't have a Joe here, do we? No, I don't think so. Have you seen, have you seen Joe, what he's doing after, after and when the amen said every, day, every, every single worship, have you noticed? And me and two other elders looked at him and said, I know I, I haven't noticed. The moment the amen says, she runs over to, he runs over to Sally, and they talk the whole time. Now, Joe was married to somebody else, and Sally was married to somebody else. And this wise elder said, we got to talk to him and her. And you talk to them, and they say, we're just friends. That's the problem. Friendliness in this is the problem. You don't do that, and every married couple would know. Can you imagine being the wife of Joe and coming home and going, stop 
every time. What are you talking about? There would be a jealousy. I've mentioned before an example. What if I came home to my wife and said, you know, me and the secretary, we're not secretary, but me and the secretary, we just, we just enjoy talking to each other so much, we've just decided to have lunch together. You know, we just, don't worry, I'm coming home every night. But that's what happens when we get friendly with worldliness, with sinfulness, with the culture of the world that allows us to start making incremental compromises, the Lord is jealous. He wants Him to be the first love. He wants Him to be the conversation. He wants Him to be the one that's talked about more than anything else. And this is exactly what was not going on with some in Pergamum. They were finding ways to compromise their relationship with Jesus. And we always have to ask ourselves, and everyone here, please ask yourself, is Jesus your everything? Is he your all? We sing it. Is he? Or are there ways that you try to dabble in the world and compromise in various ways. Nobody knows. It's just you and I'm, yeah, etc., etc., with the rationalization. And then Jesus says those words repent or I will come to them. Circle the them. You notice that? Uh, I will come to them and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Balaam was threatened with the sword of an angel. And Jesus just takes that, I'm going to use my words against you instead of in favor of you. My words will go out that will crush you. And that is the picture that's given. Let's quickly conclude then with to the one who overcomes or conquers. There are three things that Jesus said. He said, I will give him the hidden manna. Well, the hidden manna refers then to the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant that nobody got to see because nobody's allowed to open the Ark or touch it. And so the hidden manna would symbolize God's sustenance for the people. His eternal spiritual sustenance then is what is being given here. And then he says, I will give him a white stone with a new name. This is a little more difficult from what researchers have discovered is often a white, small white stone would be given to someone in, as, as an acquittal uh, symbol. He's acquitted from whatever he was accused of doing. I'll give him a white stone. You'll be acqu acquitted. And then also that white stone would be used to have access into some place you wouldn't normally have access. So those who refused to participate in the festivals or were limited access because they wouldn't uh, participate in those festivals, Jesus says, I will give you access into the city of God. I will give you access into the family of God and you'll be a part of it. And then a new name which nobody but the one who has it will, will have. That same thing is given concerning Jesus in chapter 22 and verse 12. Jesus is given a name that no one knows and only Him. Now remember, a name is not a title. We have names differently than the Hebrews. Uh, you know, ladies, you give birth and you and your husband have a chat and you go, well, I like that name. It sounds good. You don't think about whether it means that you're a fruit. 
So that's, uh, that's the way you look at that. <laughs> uh, and, and then, but in Hebrew terms, it was a description and character of the individual. So it was something unique to them and something that, uh, not, not something that, uh, well, like nobody knows it, but you know your character, but he, this person really has accomplished and so the picture is an accomplishment, a mark in which you have gone through all this and you are, you are been given that, uh, that conquering, overcome mark by this new name and genuineness then in the family of God. And that, that seems to be the picture of that. The point being, you've got an eternal, uh, eternal home and Jesus is going to be your king. So in God's kingdom... There's no room for compromise. And we have to be very, very careful, whether it be with religions that are not following the Bible or whether it would be with morality or whatever. We have to be careful about compromise in the world culture. Corinth did it. We saw dangers with Philippi doing it. These are things Paul warns about over and again and is warned here in the book of Revelation. Jesus walks in our midst. Are we compromising? These, these, these lessons have really been important to me, and I hope they are to you, because of the fact that I keep thinking that he's walking in our midst. And the way we act as a church, he sees and he knows, and he is willing to war with us with the sword of his mouth if we do not do as he's asked us to do. So let's dedicate ourselves to being what the Lord would have us be. If there's any way we can help you this morning, we would be glad to do so. Please consider your situation. You can talk to any of us afterwards. We would be glad to help you. Or if you're, uh, you want to step forward at this time, you're welcome to do so while together we stand and while we sing.